This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. By now, I'm sure you're aware of the details. You can go to my website, worldwar2podcast.net, click on the Audible link, sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, and get a free audiobook. You can keep the membership, not keep the membership, even though they do have different plans to uh, suit your needs. Um, I've been a member for just over two years now, and I absolutely love it. Um, so I'm going to make a recommendation, but obviously you can get what you want. And if you do sign up for the membership and you, and you don't plan on keeping it, Make sure you look around first because as a member, you get a 30% discount on all their purchases. So that's going to play into my recommendation today. So this time, I would like to recommend the book To Brook by Peter Fitzsimmons. Um, I know we're not there yet in the Desert War. It doesn't start until April 1941 when um, I think about 14,000 Australian forces are left behind. And they're told in about eight weeks, uh, reinforcements and supplies will come. Well, those eight weeks turn into eight months where they have to hold off General Rommel in the Africa Corps, and they do an amazing job. So it's a story about the story of Tobruk. It's a, it's a stories about the men inside of Tobruk, and it's a story about Rommel. So you learn a lot about him as well as what's going on in Berlin and uh, London. So it's a really good book. You should check it out. So that's my official recommendation. So now here's my unofficial recommendation. If you do sign up for the membership and you're only going to keep it for 30 days, also check out <clears> – <throat> sorry, that's my daughter in the background. She refuses to leave. Um, also check out another title on Audible. It's called War in the Mediterranean, Forgotten Voices of the Second World War by Max Author. The reason I'm saying uh, this should be your unofficial, this is my unofficial recommendation, is because the other book is more expensive. So what you want to do is sign up for Audible, get the Tobruk book, and then you can just purchase this one outright before your membership ends. Uh, and it's basically sets the scene about uh, Mussolini declaring war on the British. Things aren't going very well, um, but he has to deal with the problem of Malta. So the book is pretty much about um, Italy for the next two years trying to take or destroy Malta and all the bombings that went on and how the people had to endure and survive. So it's a really good um, story, but it's a lot shorter than the Tobruk one. So that one you might want to consider just buying outright and getting the other one for free. So there's my recommendations. My daughter says hello, and uh, let's get on with the story. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Episode 62, Failure, Failure Everywhere. Italian Marshal Rodolfo Graziani had his marching orders. Mussolini wanted Egypt and anything else he could get while the getting was good. So, early on September 13th, the Italians moved into Egypt. But first, just to be sure, their advance was prepared by a bombardment of the British frontier posts before them. However, there were no British casualties, because the port had already been evacuated. It was not Wavell or O'Connor's intention to stand up to the overwhelming artillery of the 10th Army. For now, the British would settle for harassing the flanks of the oncoming Italians. This slowed the already cautious Graziani to a mere 10 miles a day. The Italians were coming in two columns. One went along the coast through the town of Solom, and the other went parallel to the first one, just south of an escarpment. 
Soon the British airfield and barracks at Solom were wrecked by Italian artillery. But again, everyone was already gone. But because the Italians were so packed together, the British 7th Support Group under Gott fell back in an orderly fashion while delivering a withering attack on Italian vehicles. The British couldn't believe the parade-like order of the invaders. Military procedure, or simple prudence, would suggest that mobile Italian units race forward, flank the British, and encircle them, thus cutting off their retreat. Instead, the Italians came on with their motorcycles at the head and tail of the columns, then came light tanks, other vehicles, and infantry units in trucks at the center. The Italian column on the right, just south of the escarpment, suffered more from the British artillery, so soon gave up their exposed route and switched to the Halfaya Pass on the coastal road. Already, Graziani was showing his inability to use his superior numbers, five divisions with him and two more back at Tobruk, and his numerous tanks to punish the smaller British force. By the third day, September 16th, Graziani's lead forces had arrived at Sidi Barani, about 60 miles into Egypt. The town, it was barely that, had a police station, a mosque, one shop, and two brothels. Priorities, it seemed, were important. Probably unrelated, Graziani stopped there and then told Rome and Berlin he was only stopping to reorganize his forces, work on a metalled road and a water pipe from Libya. Then he would continue on to Cairo. As the British were acutely aware, the Italians were still some 80 miles from Mursa Matru and didn't seem to be in a rush to start up again with their advance. It's certainly valid to say that Graziani, now that he was in charge, did not have the will or desire to fight the British in the desert. Mussolini would not have anticipated this from the butcher, Graziani's nickname for the way he treated prisoners of war in Cyrenaica and Abyssinia. Cruelty was his passion, but he lacked any heated feelings for trying that on the British. The point is telling. Previously, when Graziani was chief of staff, Having been called back from Africa and promoted, his cruel treatment there provoked wide-scale insurrection, he told then-10th Army leader Balbo to take his most mobile units, load up on supplies, and head right at the British in Egypt. He knew, like the British knew of themselves, of their relative weakness at the moment. There's no telling how far the Italians could have pushed back the understrength British, but thanks to the coordination between Wavell, Wilson, and O'Connor, that situation was changing day by day. But Graziani's apologists insist that the general's instinct for self-preservation then kicked in and told him to go no further. Either way, the marshal spread out his army into a semicircle of defensive camps and begun the building of his road and water lines. But that Little voice inside his head failed him, as he also had a monument placed on the side of the road at Sidi Barani to acknowledge his army's accomplishment of invading Egypt. 
Italian radio added on to this by announcing that the trams were still running on time in city Barani. The congratulations from Rome was nice, but just to make sure his fickle duce did not replace him, Mussolini was determined, after all, to ride into Cairo on a gray horse as the protector of Islam. Graziani told his superior that when his base was ready, he would move forward systematically onto Mercer Matru, capturing everything in his path. But if Mussolini had been in camp, he would not have detected any rush to move on. But the British could not know this, so, hoping to hold the 10th Army up and give Wavell and O'Connor more time, the Royal Navy bombed Graziani's camps. Meanwhile, the Royal Air Force joined in as much as it could. Still, it was best for the Marshal that he did not advance. British General O'Connor later wrote about the probable Italian advance, quote, We hoped he would try and advance to the neighborhood of Matru, as we had prepared a full-dress counterstroke with all our armor. We worked this out on the ground, and I was greatly disappointed that he never came far enough to put it into execution. End quote. Considering O'Connor exercised that same gift of understatement, as did many other British officers, it's fortunate indeed the Italians did not advance in their military parade configuration. As September went on, the British could see that the Battle of Britain was going their way, or rather, not going the right way for the Germans, and the summer was fading fast. Perhaps they would be spared an invasion attempt this year. Now the possibility of reinforcing the Middle East seemed possible. Perhaps Longmore and Wavell could indeed have their shopping list fulfilled, after all. And here is where it gets interesting. Wavell, and all that he didn't say to Churchill, left out a particular piece of information that would have lifted the Prime Minister's heart. Of course he planned an offensive against the Italians forcing their way into Egypt. How else was he supposed to deny them Cairo, Alexandria, and the Suez? So here's what happened. On September the 11th, two days before Graziani moved with the Italian 10th, a note from Wavell to his chief of staff read, quote, What preparations can we make now? At any rate, the sooner we can make an outline plan, calculate our requirements, and submit them to the war office, the more likely we are to have what we want when the time comes, unquote. Unfortunately, the general never hinted at this when in London. Or maybe he did. Churchill heard, I will not move until I have what I need to win. But it seems that Wavell may have been saying, I will move once I have what I need to have a decent chance at victory. And back in episode 60, we already covered how Wavell got in touch with Lieutenant General Jumbo Wilson about who could lead this counterstroke. Wavell also wrote to Wilson, Quote, I wish every possible precaution that our military training can suggest to be made to ensure that if the enemy attacks Matru, the greater part of his force shall never return from it. Unquote. Those were the very sentiments Churchill was hoping to hear back in London. Why didn't Wavell say them? Who knows? 
He knew his job, but the idea of trying to sell it to the Prime Minister should not have been necessary. To his way of thinking, of course. So while the Middle East staff mulled over Wavell's orders, Mussolini and his foreign minister Ciano waited on Graziani, who waited for his road and water pipes to be completed. But the British were doing more than waiting. General O'Connor was training his men, sure that the Italians would come at Mersa Matru soon. And Secretary Eden was doing his part to bring up to strength the 6th and 7th Australian and 2nd New Zealand Divisions. What's more, the 1st South African Division was en route to Kenya, and the 5th Indian Division was on its way to Sudan. And finally, the 2nd Armored Division was promised enough units to bring it up to full strength. And because Churchill could not read Wavell's mind, he was starting to see the General's Command as a bottomless pit where all their resources were going with nothing to show for it. But he must have taken heart, because there was action being taken in a different area. General de Gaulle was finally in position to take the port city Dakar in modern-day Senegal, along with General Spears in an operation codenamed Menace. Both men, Spears and de Gaulle, were hoping to get something out of this, hopefully with very little bloodshed. Spears, for the British, desperately wanted a port for the Atlantic. The battle on the high seas was costly, and having one more port, indeed the most significant port, between the Cape and Britain for Allied ships would help greatly. Freetown of Sierra Leone was usable, but not adequate to their needs. De Gaulle, on the other hand, desired to begin the reclaiming of French honor. He genuinely believed that he could persuade the Vichy men in charge at Dakar to join his cause. Surely they couldn't be made of the same stuff as Béton and Laval. And of course, these two Allied leaders coveted the gold reserves of the Bank of France and the Polish government in exile being held at the port city. As France exited the war and the various French territories started falling either to Vichy or to de Gaulle and the Free French, the Allies hoped Dakar would come their way, as had French Cameroon and French Equatorial Africa. But it hadn't happened that way, and now, on September 23rd, General Spears and de Gaulle aboard the Dutch liner Westerland were eyeing the port city through binoculars. With them was the carrier HMS Ark Royal, the two battleships HMS Resolution and Barham, with five cruisers, ten destroyers, and transport ships enough to hold the 8,000 men with them. The plan was simple and direct. De Gaulle would negotiate with the port city and appeal to their sense of honor and nationalism. But if that failed to win the day, then the British Free French forces would take the city by force. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. 
you can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. But the Vichy French, in the form of Governor General of West Africa, Pierre-Francois Besson, was not impressed with de Gaulle's lack of rank or renown, or the British naval might that accompanied him. One reason for this was the arsenal at his disposal. The mostly repaired battleship Richelieu, two cruisers, three destroyers, three submarines, and of course, the bristling port guns. To their credit, the Allies first tried dropping propaganda leaflets over the city, again hoping French nationalism would open the door. However, the leaflet's brevity was matched by its lack of poetry. It read, Join with us to deliver France. With their opening move out of the way, it was time to talk and test the waters. So, a plane left the carrier Ark Royal and landed in Dakar. But it took as much time to know the thinking on the ground as it did to read the leaflet. The men exiting the plane were arrested. De Gaulle had his answer but refused to accept it. Next, a boat carrying other representatives of the Free French leader approached the port, but was immediately fired upon. And if that wasn't enough for de Gaulle, the next move from the port confirmed for him their true intentions. As Vichy's ships attempted to leave port to get into a better position, de Gaulle had to accept the inevitable. The heavy cruiser HMAS Australia already had and started hoisting its battle flags. The Australian ensign at the fore, a large white ensign at the main, and the normal ensign at the gaff. Despite this, the Vichy ships still moved to gain a better position. Seeing no reason to give their adversaries any tactical advantage, Australia fired warning shots at the ships moving out. This was the start of a general exchange between the opposing vessels, along with the port guns. This went on for a while, and soon a Vichy destroyer was hit, set afire, and beached. If this operation had to be completed by force, then the contest was plain to the British strength. But de Gaulle, rightly so, wanted this over with quickly, and with the port still intact. So he sent in free French troops on French sloops, and the vessel President Udus, to the beach at Rufisque, to the southeast of the port. But the approaching vessels were out in the open, and one direct hit would have caused many casualties. De Gaulle watched as the boats were spotted by the coastal defenses and opened fire. The fire directed at them was accurate, and five men were quickly injured, 
Two would later die of their wounds. The boats were called back, with the free French leader declaring later that he did not want to, quote, shed the blood of Frenchmen for Frenchmen, unquote. But it was too late. Having tried a direct assault, there was no choice but to settle for a systematic reducing of the port guns. If they could be silenced, his men could land in relative safety, and that would be the beginning of the end of Vichy resistance. But the exchange settled down as darkness came. The next day, September 24th, the fighting continued. But the Allies were about to learn of their wider vulnerabilities as 50 Vichy bombers attacked the British position at Gibraltar, dropping 150 bombs. The conflict was spreading. De Gaulle and Spears needed this to end quickly. The Vichy at Dakar knew that time was on their side, which gave them options. Always a good thing to have in battle. They would continue to resist, but they also focused on slowing down their attackers. So, they laid out smoke between themselves and the British. Visibility was severely hampered. The British ships were soon forced to fire at the gun flashes from the French ships. In the afternoon, the Australia came under attack from a Glen Martin bomber. This U.S.-made plane had been meant to help the French against Germany. Strangely, one of the reasons for Operation Menace was that President Roosevelt wanted the port taken, thus making it harder for access ships to operate against U.S. ships heading to the U.K. But war is replete with such irony. Vichy forces continued to resist, but also in their delaying tactics. They soon placed French merchant ships between themselves and their opponents. So the Allies decided to focus their guns on the Richelieu, and the port guns. If those sets of guns could be taken out, victory seemed probable. But, again, sunset was approaching before any decisive hits could be made. On the 25th, pressure was kept on the British War Cabinet as 150 bombers dropped 300 bombs on Gibraltar. This was a doubling from the first attack. Clearly, the conflict was spreading without any progress being made at Dakar. Fortunately, the bombing destroyed little there, with few casualties. At Dakar, the Vichy ships kept putting up smoke, so the Allies countered by sending up planes to guide their salvos. And, not having worked out a detailed plan for fighting for the last two days, the Allies did a better job this time. The resolution would attack the wounded Richelieu, while the Barm and the cruiser Devonshire would focus on the fort. The Australia would shell the Georges Leg and Montcalm still at harbour. This focusing other firepower helped, but soon the Allies' spotter plane, the Walrus, was shot down by an American-made Curtis fire, again which had been meant to help against the Germans. Right afterwards, the fighter was itself downed by AA fire from the Australia. This certainly got the attention of all the Vichy guns as they, in rage, turned on the Australia. As the guns from the Richelieu port and cruisers targeted the heavy cruiser, a strange vision came to those on deck. 
A rainbow of smoke evolved and drifted towards the shelled Australia. This was because the smoke from the shells of the Vichy battleship were yellow, the forts were white, and the cruisers were either green or red. The men aboard marveled at this sight, but kept fighting. The fighting remained intense throughout the day, but what neither side could know was that the battle was about to end. And by that end, the damage to both sides was significant. The Richelieu had been hit twice by 15-inch shells from the Barham, itself having been hit twice from port guns. Two of the three Vichy subs, the Piercy and Ajac, were sunk, while the Resolution suffered a hit from a torpedo from another ship. Two other British cruisers were also damaged. For de Gaulle, the situation had only gone from bad to worse, politically and militarily. Frenchmen were firing on Frenchmen, and Gibraltar was under increasing attacks. The only one winning was the Axis. But then de Gaulle decided to step away from the abyss. The Vichy government was now stating that they were seriously considering declaring war on Great Britain if the operation against Dakar did not cease. Now, the upside for the Allies was non-existent, and the downside was bottomless. They could not take on the combined might of Germany, Italy, and Vichy France, especially in North Africa. So, the cruisers and battleships were ordered by Spears to withdraw. The resolution was listing heavily to port, so destroyers moved in to screen it from bombers overhead. Their AA fire kept them at bay. But it was clear that resolution needed help. So the Barham took her under tow, and together they slowly headed south. If the Italian army under Graziani operated timidly, its navy acted the part of a paper tiger, ferocious to look at, but in the end, easy to puncture. At the beginning of Italian-British hostilities, the Italians started out with control of the central Mediterranean, as well as having a numerical advantage. So while it's true the British had the largest navy in the world, Italy had the largest navy in the Mediterranean, which meant the initiative was theirs, not that they would use it to their advantage. In June 1940, Italy had six battleships, about 20 cruisers, 61 destroyers, 70 torpedo boats, and as mentioned previously, just over 100 submarines. To help Cunningham's battle fleet counter this, Force H was sent to the western Mediterranean, thereby reducing the Italians' numerical advantage. Still, the British had fewer ships and the corresponding problem of projecting power anywhere in the Mediterranean they would need to. The concept at the center of Mussolini's navy, not that he was a nautical cove, but a lover of aircraft, was the idea of a fleet in being, that is, a fleet that was so large, with bases at key points around the Mediterranean, as to make any move that displeased the Italians naval suicide. But we'll zoom in on the details a little later. Italy controlled the Tyrian Sea, or Mar Tirreno, the water triangle with Sardinia to the west, Elba to the north, Sicily to the south, 
and the Italian mainland to the east. And of course, they controlled the Sicilian Channel. Once more, the Italian Air Force held sway over the central and eastern Mediterranean by being able to fly out of Italy, Sicily, and Rhodes. This put them in a great position to harass British transports, plying their trade from Gibraltar to Alexandria. Their position was further strengthened by the fact that their bombers from Rhodes could reach the Suez. Italian projection of power, like its navy, was impressive on paper. But now, looking at the Italian navy up close, the cracks appear without too much effort in finding them. During the interwar years, the Italians played with radar and sonar, but were considered futuristic and only adopted them in 1942 at the Germans' insistence. Next, the Italian failure to waterproof electrical systems and range-finding equipment meant that even an indirect hit would blind an already limited but powerful ship. As the initiative was quickly taken out of their hands, the Italian Navy was reduced to convoy duty. But even here, their lack of insight proved costly. Their ships were weak on depth charges, anti-aircraft guns, and anti-submarine tactics. In essence, they lacked the details to get the job done in almost every category. From there, the weaknesses continued on. The relatively small Italian industrial base meant that if any Italian ship was lost, there was a good chance it wasn't going to be replaced. Thus, the admirals were not keen on using their ships if there was a chance they would lose those ships. Or, as Douglas Porch wrote in his book, The Path to Victory, quote, For the Italians, it was a come-as-you-are war, unquote. But other problems came down to pride and arrogance. Like Germany, Mussolini proclaimed that the Air Force was the most fascist of the armed services. So, the Admiralty did not push for carriers. Those very admirals would come around, but by then it was too late, as Italy surrendered in September 1943. Mussolini begged, ordered, and screamed for interdepartmental cooperation, but it never happened. And like most other things in war, the Navy, like the Army, like the Air Force, was a human institution, and it was no better served by Mussolini than the other two. During the interwar years, Italy, mostly in the form of Mussolini, gambled on the philosophy of having a fleet in being and that would help them avoid any direct challenges or clashes. But for Britain, it was simple. When Italy declared war on Britain and France, and France left the scene, Britain could either withdraw, negotiate, or fight. Churchill's unwillingness to negotiate meant that they couldn't withdraw, and therefore had to fight. That simple decision destroyed Italy's entire naval position, and philosophy. Now Italy had to fight, where it never planned to, and they simply weren't prepared for that fight. But there was no telling the Germans that, and this was indicative of the Italian-German, but also of the Mussolini-Hitler relationship. Mussolini wanted a parallel war, not a joint venture. 
So he never fully confided in Berlin, just as Hitler never really opened up to Rome. And that lack of honest communication helped Britain tremendously. The outcome of all this was that soon Mussolini would find himself taking orders in his own theater of war, but secretly was probably relieved. In one last way, Mussolini's dream of a desert empire hurt his partner Hitler. Maybe not right away, or obviously, but it did. The British spent many hours worrying about their positions and their possessions in the Middle East during the war. Would the Arabs use this distraction, even a possible British withdrawal or defeat, to retake control of their lands and interests? Hitler, through all his speeches, never said anything about his desire to conquer their lands. Maybe they could ask him for assistance, or just wait. But Mussolini talked, he was always talking, about his vision for the Middle East. And the people there only knew the half of it. Mussolini wanted it all. He wasn't willing to spill copious amounts of Italian blood for it, maybe German blood, but he still wanted it. In the end, the Arabs held back, mostly, in challenging the British for domination, because they saw themselves as possibly pushing out the British, only to watch the Italians try to move in with German help. And the devil you know is always preferable. So, as September 1940 ends, the Italians are holed up just inside Egypt. The Luftwaffe is being deflected and bloodied over England, and Hitler's desire to invade the Soviet Union is still only a thought in his mind. But the leader of Nazi Germany knew he needed to act. The Allies had to be kept on the defensive. Surely there was something more to be done to bring this British stubbornness to an end. Then it hit him. There was a way not only to hurt the British further, regardless of Operation Eagle or Operation Sea Lion, but to also help Mussolini, who clearly needed it, but wasn't about to ask for it. Hitler would meet with Franco of Spain and propose a joint operation against the British in Gibraltar. The British would lose their position in the Western Mediterranean. Franco would be drawn in, much like Mussolini had been. And to boot, the Italian Navy would be that much more secure and able to focus on the remaining British naval units in the Mediterranean. In fact, this idea had been in Hitler's thinking since late August, as the RAF seemed more than able to thwart Goering's Luftwaffe. Taking it one step further, Hitler told his closest advisors, perhaps a coordinated attack on Egypt with the Italians, while simultaneously going after Gibraltar with the Spanish. If Operation Eagle wasn't going to be the death knell of the British, perhaps Operation Felix, the German name for this idea, could be. The meeting with Franco was set up for October.
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just to let you know, we all here survived um, Sandy. I started to say Operation Sandy. We all survived Hurricane Sandy. Um, we all had a nice Halloween. Everything was fine. So thank you for all your emails and concern. I really do appreciate it. So those are the family. Um, just in case you didn't listen to my five-minute little five minute little blurb on iTunes, and I don't blame you if you didn't, um, the voting for the podcast awards starts November 1st. So you'll probably get this after that, but if you could um, go to podcastawards.com, read the rules and regulations. I think you can pretty much vote once a day, but if you could do that, even though we're going to get creamed, uh, we might as well make a run of it, right? So I really appreciate anything that you do in that department. Also, please make sure you go back and listen to that little five-minute segment on iTunes um, because it tells you about a contest that I'm having to give away a replica of a newspaper from December 8th, 1941. So please go back and listen to that. And yes, when you do go to Podcast Awards, uh, you will find that Laszlo and I are um, in the same category. Um, so, you know, hey, there goes that friendship. But anyway, so it, we're going to lose together, so we're still friends. Um, so one last thing before I let you go is I want to thank the people who have donated. Again, it's made a huge difference. First is Harvey W. from Solentuna, Sweden. I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, thank you for ordering a CD. And yes, I got your email about the details on the ships. You were disappointed in me. Um, I'm going to be totally honest with everyone. Um, all things nautical intimidate me. I don't know anything about it. So one, if you could recommend any book, recommend any books on any the basics of shipping. You know the differences between cruisers, destroyers, all that kind of stuff. Anything you think might help, um, please uh, send me an email. Let me know. Also, I'm trying to get some. Um, experts on the show to interview them so one i can not only turn it into an episode but uh, learn a lot and so then i can go back um and cover that but harvey i do plan on going into great detail um i think it's in november of 1940 when cunningham um, pretty much lays into the italians um, but i will be covering it in more detail so i apologize for that i still need to learn so i don't sound like an idiot um I'd like to also thank Harvey B, which is different from Harvey W. Uh, Harvey B um, in Surrey, UK, for his donation. Thank you. And Jeffrey F uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Um, Jacob L of Victoria, Australia. Thank you. Robert P of Torrance, California, who really enjoyed the uh, conversation that Laszlo and I did together for his 100th episode. Uh, Chris M from Bristol, UK. Sean M from somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't know how to say the city and I don't want to uh, butcher it. So I apologize for that. Uh, Pauli, Pauli, I don't know. Maybe you can send me an email and tell me how to say it and I'll try it again on the next episode. So thank you all for your donations and CD orders. So I will see you as soon as I can with episode 63. Take care, everyone. <laughs>